Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Live from the 6th and Peabody studio and across the OutKick network, this is OutKick 360 with Jonathan Hutton, Chad Withrow, and Paul Kuharski. Second hour of OutKick 360 on this Friday as we are rolling right along. Alongside Paul Kuharski, I am Chad Withrow. Jonathan Hutton will be back with us on Monday. Big thanks to everyone listening across the OutKick 360 radio network or if you're watching on the Outkick Network, we appreciate you as well. Loaded show today. Already had uh, a guest. We're going to have more as the show continues. Tom Luganville, uh, who's terrific on college football, recruiting, talking college football as a whole with ESPN. He's going to join us coming up here in about 20 minutes. We've got Glenn Gilbo talking SEC. He is with Outkick.com coming up at 4. And at 420, we'll go, we'll dive all in on the British Open with Ned Michaels who's part of the broadcast with the BBC. You can follow him on Twitter, at Ned Michaels. He's coming up at 4.20 uh, this afternoon, 4.20 Central Time. Um, Phil Mickelson also is not going to make the cut. He's plus five after two rounds, and, and he's done. So he'll be headed home. Uh, Phil Mickelson also got a little bit testy. Phil Mickelson does not often show this side, but you see it rear its head every now and again. Alan Shipnook talked about this with us about Phil Mickelson getting so heated that people in the grandstands were watching, leaning over, looking down to see what was going on when Phil was getting in his face at, at one point. And I thought he handled this honestly pretty well, uh, considering the situation. Phil Mickelson, after his round at St. Andrews yesterday, was asked, as you would expect, multiple questions about joining the Live Tour and about not being a part of the Champions Dinner festivities, the British Open, and um, he admitted, he said, you know, they called me and said, you're welcome to come, but we don't think you should be here because it's going to cause a scene and be a distraction. And he agreed. Phil said, I, okay, I agree. I, I won't do it. Um, if you notice, also, Greg Norman um, has, after not being invited, has been silent on it. I, I honestly think that's from Greg Norman out of respect for the British Open. He holds that tournament in high regard and his two championships there in high regard. I don't think he's doing interviews or talking about it because he does not want to be the story this weekend with the British Open going on. I really believe that uh, with Greg Norman. But anyway, Phil Mickelson said, when asked about how he's feeling about all this and how he's doing, he said, quote, I couldn't be more excited and ecstatic where I'm at right now. I love the events, and he's talking about the Live Tour. I get to have competitive golf in my life on a scale that is fun, exciting, different, and lets me play and compete but still do the things outside that I want to do. Went on to say, I've got a great trip coming up right after I'm done here. You know, things are going great. And someone stepped in and asked him again, well, how is he feeling about all this? And Phil Mickelson snapped back and said, let it go, dude. Let it go. That's three times you've asked the same question. I don't know what to tell you. I couldn't be happier. Um, Paul, he's obviously going to get a bunch of questions like this. I mean, I can understand responding that way if someone's asking the same question over and over again, expecting a different answer. Yeah, I mean, that's not a great question. I think there are probably good questions to be asked to build the 
the next level, uh, you know, to go the next place on this. I don't know if, if that's right now, but you have access to them right now. So it's when you ask it, that's not it though. So I can understand him being frustrated, uh, by that. That's been asked and answered as you would say in, uh, in court, at least according to TV shows. Um, so the next event is, uh, not this, uh, it's, in two weeks. The next the, live tour the 29th event. 29th in New Jersey. Um, so it's a very easy schedule, <laughs> the live tour yeah, right now. July I mean, it's, it's 29th, very September 2nd, September, and this is New Jersey, Boston, Chicago, September 16th, Bangkok, October 7th, Jeddah, uh, I think that's the one yep. that's in uh, Saudi Arabia that's on it, October right. 14th, and Miami, October 27th. Which is the only one that's actually in Saudi Arabia, I think. And right? by the way, they have buy tickets on all of them, except Bangkok says waiting list, and Miami says waiting list. Um, it would be an interesting event to see, for sure. I, 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 I don't know how it's executed right now. They're, they're how do really... you like this for a slogan on the website? The grass is always greener when you're standing on it. Sounds like a, almost a Jack Handy. It sounds like a, the floor is the roof yeah. type thing where you're sitting there thinking, what? What was the old line I would use with, with Vandy football? It's both the good thing and, and a, a bad, bad thing, thing if, if, James if James Franklin were, were, to, leave. were to leave. That was our social and media that would, experiment that, would have that people. we blew by saying it. The grass is always greener when you're standing on it. I, I don't see how that's true. Yeah, you could see green grass from a distance or if you're standing on it. And if you're standing on it, you're helping ruin the ultimate greenness of it. That gets me looking like Zach Galifianakis in, uh, yeah, in the, the Hangover with all the algorithms going in my head when I, when I hear that slogan. Uh, here was the exact quote, by the way, from Phil about the RNA and not going to the event. He said, the RNA contacted me a couple weeks before and said, look, we don't think it's a great idea if you go, but if you want to, you can. I just didn't want to make a big deal about it, so I said, fine. We both kind of agreed that it would be best if I didn't. And that's exactly how I would probably have responded to it's the proper play. If someone calls you from leadership at an event that you've been a part of in the past and they say, hey, you're more than welcome to come. We don't think you should, but you're welcome to come. It's I'd a, probably say, yeah, don't worry about it. I, I, won't, I won't make it. It's a non-vitation. It's a good way to put it. A, a non-vitation. I credit that to Elaine Bennis. So the big story today is the Houston Texans settling 30 cases with 30 accusers of Deshaun Watson today, settling out of court. Uh, the quotes coming from Cal McNair is that um, here, and I'll, I'll read the exact quotes from Cal McNair. Quote, we were shocked and deeply saddened when we first learned of the allegations against our then-franchise quarterback in March 2021. Although our organization did not have any knowledge of Deshaun Watson's alleged misconduct, we have intentionally chosen to resolve this matter amicably. This is not an admission of any wrongdoing, but instead a clear stand against any form of sexual assault and misconduct. Uh, we hope that today's resolution will provide some form of closure to the parties involved, our fans, and the Houston community at large. As an organization, we will now turn our focus to the future and doing what we can to ensure respect for all. Paul, is this factored in at all with the league? You've got one of 32 member teams, a club now, that this whole situation has cost them, I'm assuming, a lot of money. Right. I mean, even by NFL standards, I'm sure it's not much by NFL owner standards, but I'm assuming that this was pretty pricey to settle with the 30 accusers and stop this thing well, the right league's, now. The league's not looking into the Texans on any level that we but know I, about. I, I say that only because if it's a league decision on what to do, 
how heavy-handed to be with this, this suspension. You've got a part of the league in the Texans. We don't admit guilt, but here's a payoff to the 30 accusers to make all this go away just because this guy was our franchise quarterback. Well, I think in the league That's really the reason. That's why they're doing that is what they're saying in the statement. Yeah. That's pretty damning. I would think in the league's eyes that the Houston Texans have paid their price for uh, their... Um, well, I'm not talking about the league doing anything to the Texans. I'm saying in factoring what they're going to do to penalize the Browns and Watson. Are they going to factor in? This other team has paid dearly. And they well, even had to pay the accusers because they employed this guy. So does that make it harder for them to come back and say, okay, he's going to miss half a season? For the Browns, I don't and then think, everything's fine. I don't think it's a big factor, Chad, but I think it's baked in the cake. That that um, I think is already baked in the cake. That look, the guy was uh, in such an awkward situation last year that he earned ten point something million dollars for standing over on that field while the Houston Texans practiced over on this field, and they couldn't play their franchise quarterback who was demanding a trade even before all these accusations came about and further complicated things with them. And, uh, and they suffered for it. He was untradeable uh, because of the accusation standing over him. I think, I think that's all baked into the cake with, uh, with the difficulties that Deshaun Watson has had and is, is a factor. I don't think that uh, Robinson, the presiding judge over this, is, has a pie slice where she's saying, well, you know, this piece counts for that much of a penalty and this piece and this piece. I, I think she's looking at it as a, as a whole thing. And that's part of the whole thing. Not a big part, but, but a part. I mean, his personal conduct, it's a personal conduct policy, and it's over whether he, his behavior was detrimental to the league, right? Conduct detrimental to the league. There is no way that you can argue that his contact, conduct was not detrimental to the league. This has been in a season where uh, Russell Wilson was traded – Aaron Rodgers decided to stay and play. Devontae Adams and Tyreek Hill and A.J. Brown were traded. This is in an offseason where all of these things has happened. This has been the predominant story for the league. His contact detrimental to the league has been the story of the league. That is clearly detrimental to the league. And the Texans' piece of this is so interesting because you have the Texans who seemingly are trying to do everything to just move forward and be done with this and close that chapter. Um, they're, they're coming to a settlement with the accusers quickly. They do all these things to just try to move on. We had David Coley in studio, and he talked about, I was just trying to move forward. You know, the moment he knew that Deshaun Watson, after one quick meeting, was not going to give them the time of day or a chance to play, and he knew the Texans' decision was he's just not going to play and don't even think about it. It was all about changing things with that organization, right? Trying to change them for the better. But yet, what doesn't line up with that is David Coley is run off because in large part, and he told us this, they wanted him to make changes he would not make on his staff, and they answered that by promoting a guy from his staff to head coach. That's the part, Paul, that I have a difficult time squaring away with the direction of that organization. Yeah, well, what needs to continue to be mentioned here on a day where the Texans did something smart by 
getting this, uh, getting distance from this and removing themselves from any further attachment to what's gone on with Deshaun Watson is it's a poorly run organization with some questionable people. Casario has been uh, disappointing in, in what he's done personnel wise. The coaching hire was uh, a sham. Um, they wanted McCown to be their head coach, which would have been a ridiculous hire that they would have gotten bashed for. Um, and they had to back out. I mean, think of think of it. You're you're in position to hire an unqualified coach, and then you have to back out of it because of a lawsuit that doesn't pertain to you, but that would make your ridiculous hire look even more ridiculous, and you would have gotten slammed for it. So now, outside PR concerns are dictating what you do, and then you basically throw up your hands and say, "Okay, we're going to hire." Uh, for somebody from within instead. I mean, that's a terribly run organization. But they should right have now. just, but here's the thing if you really want to change and just move forward and do something different, you don't let public opinion sway you from Josh McCown. I think that's ridiculous of a hire, but that shows how weak they are as an organization that this is what they wanted to do, and it was so negatively received that they, they didn't do it. Reverse course and then just hot promoted a guy. From their staff that's been an NFL head coach or, before. you know, don't you have a plan B? Well, if it's not McCown, we're going to go to With New this, England this and, hi- and hire a guy Gerard that our Mayo. GM knows Yeah, and hire... Um, Gerard Mayo. Yeah, Gerard Mayo. Yeah. That would have been, I think, well-received. Hey, you're pushing the envelope. You're going outside the box. Young, hot. Young, hot coaches are the thing in the league, uh, mostly offensive. So you go young, hot, and defensive. Well, we've seen a young, hot, defensive guy do really well in Nashville, Tennessee, named Mike Rabel. That worked well. You could have said, hey, former Patriot, Gerard Mayo, we're, we're rolling the dice with that. That would have been well-received. Yeah. and Lovey Smith, not well-received. It just nothing really makes sense. I think this move by the Texans today makes sense on their part. I don't think anything else they're doing football move. makes a lot of sense. Correct. Yeah, this business move on makes the side sense. makes sense, but the football stuff, not much. Someone who does make sense when he's talking football is Tom Luganville with ESPN, college football analyst, recruiting expert. Tom Luganville, excited about this. He's going to join us next. This is Outkick 360. What's up, everyone? It's Nick Wright, and I got something exciting to talk to you about today. Angie your ultimate destination for getting all your jobs done well. Now, Angie isn't just your average home services marketplace. It's a game changer. With over 150 million homeowners served and a network of over 200,000 skilled pros, Angie has experience and expertise to tackle any project with ease. Whether you're looking to spruce up your backyard or undergo a major home renovation, Angie's got your back. And their pros are locally based, often running small businesses right in your community. And here's the best part. Angie makes the process seamless. From researching and comparing pros to scheduling services at your convenience, Angie's user-friendly platform puts you in control. So why settle for anything less than perfection when it comes to your home? With Angie, you can trust every project will be completed with the utmost care and professionalism. So get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today to discover why homeowners across the nation are turning to Angie 
to get all their jobs done well. We are back on Outkick 360. Chad Withrow with Paul Kuharski on this Friday. Excited to talk some football with our next guest. Always a great interview. Tom Luganville with ESPN, college football analyst, recruiting analyst as well. And there's a lot to get into in college football right now. We're in media day season, so there's plenty of talk going on. And Tom Luganville joins us now to do some talking as well. Tom, really appreciate the time today. Thanks for hopping on with us. You bet, guys. Looking forward to a great weekend. Thanks for having me. Wow, what sterling audio. That, I'm blown that, away that by your audio Audio quality. is terrific. We mean that in all seriousness. It, you, you sound Are great. Are you serious? Yes. Because yes. I want to make sure it's only no. the best for you guys. You sound terrific. amazing. So thank you so much. <laughs> um, so do you want to just host the show now with that audio? I'm kidding. No, you, you sound great, though. So here's Sure, my I'll first just join question. you for the rest of the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah. We've got an hour and a half left. I'm sure you got nothing better <laughs> to do. Um, with, with Mike Gundy, First off, just always delivering great content from the I'm a man, I'm 40 speech to standing up there and saying, you know, I don't really know why Texas and Oklahoma are here and Bedlam is dead. Um, Is Mike Gundy exactly what the Big 12 needs from an attitude standpoint? And do you think Brett Yormark sort of has that same attitude with some of his comments about what they need to do now to stay relevant with the Big 10 and with the SEC? Yeah, I think so. I think he's given a little bit of that matter of fact in your face, going to tell you what he thinks that maybe they lost when Mike Leach left the Big 12 and went to the Pac-12. Now, of course, at Mississippi State, especially in a setting like the media day setting that we have each and every summer this time of year. And he's just one of those guys. I got to be honest with you guys. I I think he's to the point now. And I have talked to a lot of coaches over the last several months and and, you know, we're, we've got NIL, we've got the transfer portal, we've got conference realignment. I, I think a lot of these guys are just fed up, uh, you know, or everybody's so worried about saying the wrong thing or you're going to get canceled for this. You're going to say that. And Mike Leach doesn't, excuse me, uh, Mike Gundy doesn't think in those terms. I, you know, he, he says what he feels. He wears his heart on his chest. And he's one of those guys that, in, in my opinion, knows exactly who he is and exactly what his program is all about. Now think about it. Texas and Oklahoma are bailing out right now. We've seen what's taking place with the Pac-12 and, and the Big Ten. If you're looking at the Big 12 right now, you've got Baylor, and now you've got really Oklahoma State. They're the big dogs, right? I mean, th- those are the teams that could take the lead and become the forefront of the conference if the conference is what uh, we think it may be, whether it's next year, three years, or five years from now. Yeah, and, and when you look at what, you know, uh, let's look at Texas Tech as another team that could possibly get in that mix of powers uh, in the Big 12, the way it's constructed. $200 million project coming their yeah. way for a new facility. You've got Joey McGuire, who's a longtime high school coach who knows that state well. How big of a move is that, Tom, for Texas Tech to make that level of investment, especially now where everyone across the country is looking for the haves and not the have-nots? I think it's necessary and I think it's very forward thinking because we are embarking on an era in college football where we are widening the gap, right? If we keep going down this this path where NIL now is affecting recruiting and everything's about money and we're talking about power conferences and super conferences, well, there are only going to be a select group of programs and universities that can afford to live in that space. So I think if you're Texas Tech, and you're putting forth stadium enhancements and facility projects, and you're doing things to show that, hey, if this thing keeps going down this path, 
we're going to be one of the ones that are taking that path because there's going to be a lot that are going to have to make a choice as an institution and ask themselves, can, can we financially survive? Maybe not only survive, but could we thrive in this type of market if financially we get phased out because we either don't have the backing or as a university, we don't want to make that commitment. And I think from Texas Tech's perspective, they hired the right guy. I've known Joey uh, going back years and years. He actually used to coach in our Under Armour All-America game. Uh, he's a fantastic tireless recruiter. He's exactly what they needed uh, at, at, at the right time. And then to have this news come out here in, in relationship to what the university is doing, again, I think it sends a message that everybody's jockeying for position, right, guys? And at some point, the music's going to stop, and there's going to be a lot of people left without a chair. It's all projection, obviously, uh, with recruits as they come up. Yeah. Is there any chance that Arch Manning does not live up to the hype? What, what percentage chance is there that he's not what we hear from everybody he will be? Very, very high. I, I think, you know, I get asked all the time, is he overrated? Of course he is. You know, everybody that is in that position that has had that type of exposure, that type of spotlight is is going to be overhyped you can't help it it's nothing that the kids done wrong it's just the world we're living in and that magnifying glass is going to be on him the, the quarterback position at the high school ranks and projecting it going forward is really really difficult to do because there are a lot of kids that are very very talented physically but it's a lot of the unknown variables that are so hard to identify or to secure or make sure you get right throughout the recruiting process that in many instances, you may not find out if this guy has the right mental toughness, if he's got the right competitive temperament, uh, if he's, if he's a worker in the off season, is he a leader in your locker room? Could he tear down your locker room? What type of personality is he? Um, a lot of times until you get him, you may not be able to check all of those boxes. You want to check as many as you can. So Arch Manning to me is, no different than any other high-profile quarterback. The only problem is, is his last name's not Smith or or Johnson or or Williams. So it just adds that extra layer. Now, a lot of people say, "Well, why would he choose Texas over Alabama or Alabama or or over Georgia?" Well, right now in the transfer portal era, guys, it doesn't matter if it doesn't work out. If he finds that he made the wrong choice, he can just leave. Now, I look at it from a all right, well, who's around the quarterback? So if I'm looking at that decision, I'm saying, okay, I'm trying to compare Texas and Alabama and Georgia and their roster, and you can't compare. So Arch Manning's a piece of the puzzle for Texas, but it's a large puzzle that's still missing a lot of pieces. So I'm really intrigued to see how much better the roster can get for Sark at the University of Texas around, whether it's Quinn Ewers this fall or Arch Manning two years from now or three years from now. The rest of the roster is going to have to catch up because they're not playing with the same guys that Alabama and Georgia's playing with right now. I want to ask you about Nico Yamaleava also coming from California and committed to Tennessee. And there's only a handful of five-star quarterbacks. And now as we've entered the NIL era, the yeah. market for those five-star quarterbacks are going to be a list of 15 to 20 schools we would all expect that are extremely mm -hmm. passionate about football, that have a lot of resources – but how much, Tom, does that also up the pressure meter on some of these guys? When you know We don't have firm reports on anything, but there's going to be discussions right. about what someone's going to get as a starting quarterback at an SEC school or a Big, you know, a Big Ten school if they're a four- or five-star guy. 
How much does that add to the outside pressure on some of these players? And just your specific thoughts on Yamaleava as a prospect. So I, I think it's significant and it's enormous and it's very, at the same time, problematic. Um, we, we look at that particular kid. My concern is that he is very caught up in the recruiting process. He's very caught up in the exposure, in the hype. I think that uh, it's been my experience that when that happens, it becomes very, very difficult for that particular player, whoever it may be, to keep his feet on the ground, come back down to earth and realize that he's going to go from being a, uh, a big fish in a small pond to being a little bitty guppy in a massive lake. And it's going to be hard and it's going to be difficult and all eyes are going to be on him. There's going to be expectations that are not applied to other people. What is the mental capacity of 16, 17, 18 year olds to be able to handle that without a monetary figure tied to it. Now you add the the monetary side to it and it just, I think it exacerbates the problem. And I've heard people say, well, you know, the market will of course correct itself. Well, it may, or it may not. The problem is, is generally when we talk about name, image, and likeness and how it is seeped down into the recruiting ranks, a lot of those people that are throwing those dollars at kids they have money to burn. They have money to lose. All right. The market will generally correct itself if we're talking about businesses that want to stay in business, right? If we're talking about people that are backing these kids or investing these kids, and then all of a sudden it becomes a very poor investment and they're out. So um, I, I do think it's concerning. I think he's a good prospect. I'm very concerned on the side of, of him focusing on the things that matter. I mean, at the end of the day, this was never intended to be involved in recruiting. Now, anybody with half a brain that saw this unleashed with essentially no rules, no guidelines, no regulations could have seen that this was what was going to happen. So this isn't necessarily name, image, and likeness. This isn't even pay to play. This is paid to sign. All right, well, that's the easy part. Now, once you get them, the likelihood of those guys panning out is not overly high. It is a huge risk. So I think over the next two to three seasons, I think it's going to start with Quinn Ewers this fall, guys, at Texas. Talking about a player that has not played a, a football game since the end of his junior season. He has yet to attempt a college pass, and apparently he's a multimillionaire. He hadn't played a snap. I mean, what are we doing here? This doesn't, I mean, it, 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 to me, it's insanity, but this is the world we're living in. So these kids are going to have to step up and they better be as advertised or it's all going to come crashing down because right now we don't have a lot of guys and we don't have much of a sample size to say, Hey, listen, this didn't work out very well, you know, or that guy did not pan out. We're going to have more of that here in the next two to three years. Tom Luganville with ESPN is our guest on Outkick 360. You could argue that Tennessee has not really had an identity since maybe Lane Kiffin in 09 when they were yeah. just a brash, arrogant, trash-talking team for one year. Um, do they have an identity now with Josh Heupel because of his style of play and how they immediately became the fastest-playing offense in America in year one? And it's clear he's not going to shy away from that identity. There's no question. And you just nailed it. What is the identity? It's to run as many plays as we can in a 60-minute football game and play keep away from the other team. That's essentially what they do. And they want to they want to push the ball down the field. They want to create big explosive plays in the vertical passing game. And they're going to go so fast to where they hope they catch you off guard or you're trying to substitute and you can't get the right personnel on the field. And now they got you and you're stuck in the wrong personnel package on defense. And they are just steamrolling. I think the thing to note, and I had Tennessee early in the year last year um, in a very, very well-played game where they lost to Pitt in week two. It's a great and that game. That was before Pitt. 
yeah, it was a great game. And that was before I think Pitt, people really realized how good Pitt was. But Tennessee had every opportunity to win that game. And that was the game that Hendon Hooker replaced. Um, who was it? I Joe don't even Milton. think about it. Joe now. Milton. Joe Milton. That's yeah. right. Yeah, he replaced Joe Milton, who was not playing well that day. And next thing you know, Hendon Hooker finds a groove and they get rolling. But the one thing I noticed when I went to practice prior to that game was whatever the problems were internally at Tennessee, they weren't as much about talent as I think people think that it was because there are some talented football players on that team. And there's some core pieces of the puzzle that were a perfect fit for what Josh Heupel wanted to do. And they hit the ground running. Now, as we know, they've raised the bar of expectation, right? And they did it sooner than people expected, which means that, you know, there's, there's a, a, a big microscope on them that is expecting a lot of things, how much better that can they get from year one to year two? Has the has the roster that drastically improved that quickly? Because remember, they're still undermanned scholarship wise. They still got NCAA stuff looming over their head. So they're working the transfer portal. They do have a quarterback and they do have an identity. And I think people look at them differently now. I think if you looked at Tennessee two years ago, you looked at them if you're an SEC team outside of maybe two or three programs, you looked at Tennessee and you put a W in the win column and you probably wrote it in ink. Now, I don't know if you're doing that. If you are doing it, you're writing it in pencil. Do you have a team or two maybe at this stage that you feel is uh, going to achieve beyond the general expectation this coming fall? Yeah, I think Utah has a chance to be really, really good. Um, I think they are a dark horse potential college football playoff like cusp team, a team that if, if they play the way they're, they're certainly capable of playing um, they get those secondary guys back that they were missing in the Rose Bowl uh, a year ago. They've got themselves a quarterback. They're physical up front in, in the trenches on both sides of the ball. Uh, to me, I, I think they've got a chance uh, to be a, a really, really exciting football team. And I know, you know, it's easy to sit here and say that, uh, you know, uh, Miami's going to be vastly improved. And, and, and I think that they will be because I think they have two things. They've got the right leadership uh, from a head coaching perspective, and they got a quarterback in, in in Tyler Van Dyke that is an absolute difference maker. And so I, I think they could be a team that have got enough pieces of the puzzle to give some people some fits because they've got athletes. I think they've got a new direction. And as I mentioned, the quarterback is really, really good. So my second Lane Kiffin mentioned here in this interview, let's talk <laughs> about Lane Kiffin it. at Ole Miss. Big, big Lane Kiffin guy. Um, yeah. The strategy, and I, I have to call it a strategy, and maybe it's a forced strategy, I, I don't know, but Lane Kiffin not recruiting well in the high school ranks, but the number one transfer portal school. They lose 20 of their 22 starters off last year's team. And, Tom, it's basically a quick change of a bunch of transfers coming in, and they're going to try to run it back with a bunch of new guys that, were, that produced for other programs. What do you think about this approach from Lane Kiffin, and is he the type of coach that can pull this off? Well, I, I think that the approach is is maybe not as risky as everybody makes it out to be if, and this is the if, when you're fishing in the transfer portal, you've done an outstanding job of identifying if the guy you're considering taking is in the portal because he's a problem. That's number one. You don't want to bring that into your locker room. And then number two, how many actual years of eligibility does he have left? Is he a, is he a four to play three guy, meaning he still has a red shirt year and then three years of eligibility after that? How much long-term depth can you still have by going that route 
versus going primarily the the high school recruiting route? And the answer to that question is you got to stay away from one year guys. Now, I think if you do that, you could get yourself in into to some trouble because you're not building and developing any long-term depth within your program. You're not developing players in your program. But if you get guys that got two, three, maybe even four years left of eligibility, that's a different conversation. And so, you know, if you feel like, and again, recruiting is a, is a high risk proposition at the high school level, you're dealing with kids. Okay. And you're dealing with a lot of unknown variables. And if you feel like you can go after a guy that's two years older, that's maybe played power five football, maybe he started five or six games, you know, so much more about that guy than you do about the high school guy that it actually may be the safer bet. But again, you got to identify why he's in the portal and make sure there's multiple years of eligibility remaining. I kind of like it. I think it's going to be fascinating uh, to, to watch and, and see how this thing unfolds because he gets the headlines, you know, but there's a bunch of people, you know, Spavital at Texas State didn't recruit a high school player or sign a high school player, I think, in the last two classes. All right, they just went out and transfer portal and brought a bunch of other guys in. So um, it's going to be fascinating to see how these teams put themselves together over the next two to three years. How does Brian Harson make it work at Auburn with everything this offseason, with basically a failed coup by certain donors? Expectations are always going to be high at Auburn. Mm-hmm. He came very close to upsetting Alabama in year one, but overall not a great season. I mean, right. what is success for Brian Harson going into this year, and how do you make that happen with all these other factors around your program? Well, that's, that's a great question, and the scheduling is is brutal, as yep. it usually is. You've got to identify a quarterback. Do they have an answer there? Um, maybe. Maybe, you know, Zach Calzada played, you know, quite a bit of football. Uh, they at least have more bodies in the room than than maybe what they were pleased with a year ago. But when you look at that job, I've always said that's, you know, that's one job where you are hired to be fired because it's uh, it's just a matter of time. And, and that's, you know, for the most part, true in the coaching profession in general. But the leash is so short there and the expectation is 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 so massive to perform. And you're dealing with an Alabama across the state and then you're you're wedged in between Mississippi and Georgia. So you've got, you know, Ole Miss, Mississippi State, and then you got Georgia and you've got Alabama. Auburn. They're all in there and everybody's fishing in the same pool for players. And now you're expected to beat your in-state rival, then you're expected to beat your crossover team. And then you're, you know, you're expected to to steal one away from uh, LSU while all the while you can't lose or afford to lose to a team that everybody says you're supposed to beat, which could very easily happen. I think that he's going to probably have to win nine. And I don't know if that's possible. I don't know if they're good enough. And, and listen, Brian Harson didn't all of a sudden take stupid pills when he signed on as the Auburn head coach. You know, he's uh, the guys won a lot of football games. He's had a very strong strategy. He's had a very strong blueprint uh, in, in how to execute what he wants to do. He's a, he's a staunch disciplinarian, but he has stepped into a scenario here that was unlike anything. I think he could have possibly imagined no matter how many people might've tried to paint the picture to make him realize it. He probably, had no idea. So I think this is going to be a very, very interesting fall for them. If the quarterback doesn't pan out, I think they're in big trouble. How do you envision this Georgia team stacking up against last year's Georgia team? You know, it's interesting because they are now going down the path that Alabama has already been down and Clemson has now been down a couple of times. And that is when you get to the top and you win it all, 
and you spend an entire off season with everybody patting you on the back and telling you how good you are, are you able to get right back on the field, right back in the swing of things with maybe a new cast of characters? You lose all of that NFL talent. Are you able to get on the field and put yourself in position to do it again? Because to me, you know, everybody talks about Nick Saban and the process and, and all of this and that. I think Nick Saban's greatest trait that's, trait that's maybe the most undervalued is he's somehow able to get 18 to 22-year-old kids to perform at their highest level when everybody's patting them on the back. It's, it's amazing because what, what, what's the natural inclination for a young person to do when he's receiving a lot of accolades and, and everybody's telling them how good they are? They want to buy into it, right? They start reading the press clippings. Next thing you know, you, you're not working as hard in the weight room. You're not practicing as hard. That's a really difficult thing to get your kids to do. I think that's Kirby Smart's greatest task is how do you get this team now to show that they can have significant losses, they can lose guys in the transfer portal, they can lose guys to the NFL draft, and still be playing for the SEC championship because they're that good in their depth. And the team knows that it doesn't get easier when you win the national title. It actually gets harder. And I, I think that's what's made some of those Dabo teams that he's had really, really good, you know, great in many ways. And I think that's what's made Nick Saban's team so good is they handle success well. Can Georgia do the same thing with a lot of new faces? Five first-round draft picks on defense alone for Georgia yep. this past season. So, a lot of talent behind them, though, so we'll see how that works out. A lot of talent coming into Notre Dame with Marcus Freeman and what yeah. he's done in recruiting. Is this a sustainable pace for him from what you've seen very early on in his tenure, Tom? Uh, potentially. I, I think that, you know, generally this is kind of you, you carry the momentum of being the fresh young face, the new head coach, you got a new staff and now all of a sudden you're doing things your way. And, and, and he is a grinder in recruiting. He's very, very well received. Um, so I, is it sustainable? Yes. I still think at the end of the day, if, if Notre Dame's going to get on the field with an Ohio state, they're going to get on the field with an Alabama, they're going to get on the field with a, with a Clemson or a Georgia, they're going to have to have the same level of personnel in the offensive and defensive line. And I'm not just talking starters. I'm talking about rotational depth because at the end of the day, that is what is separated, you know, Alabama and Ohio state and Clemson and Georgia. That's what separated them from everybody else. And so in order for Notre Dame to do that, they have to go into those teams backyards and pull those kids out of there and give them a reason not to go to Alabama, not to go to Georgia. That's what Ohio State was able to do with guys like the Bosa brothers and Von Bell at safety, who was from Georgia. Raekwon McMillan, the linebacker, he was from Georgia. They dipped down into Florida for a lot of kids. They've been able to do that in their offensive and defensive front. Can Notre Dame do that? Can he steal a guy from Alabama? Can he steal a guy from Georgia? Maybe do it two or three times in the defensive and offensive front. They're going to have access to quarterbacks. They're going to have access to skill guys. Those guys are everywhere. If you're going to compete with the big boys at the elite, elite level, it's up front where you're going to have to have absolute difference makers. Tom Luganville, ESPN, has been our guest and a terrific one at that. Tom, I'm curious, when do you get your game assignments for week one of the college football <laughs> season? Do, I'm sure you don't have it now, yeah. do you? Or do you? No, I, 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 I don't, but it's funny you ask that because we actually just got a, uh, an email yesterday stating that they're getting ready to put together our week zero and our week one. I, I do know that I'll have two high school broadcast. We do our high school kickoff uh, weekend where we, we broadcast games on, on all of our platforms and networks. So I think I'll probably two, uh, do two of those. And then I'll know my week one 
I think within the next week, but then once we start the season, we don't actually find out where we're going until the Sunday prior to the game each and every week is, you know, the deck gets shuffled and the TV matchups get aligned. And I just know that generally I'm my crew, Dave Pash, myself, Dusty Dvorak, uh, we've generally been 3.30 ABC, noon ABC, or noon ESPN. So we always kind of know what window we're going to be in. Is it the high school football weekend, week zero, then week one, in that order, yes. I feel like, every year starting mid-August? That's right. Uh, yeah, there, yeah. No, there's no doubt about it. So you start counting down the days. And, uh, I mean, I can't believe how fast this this yeah. summer is gone. And so I think it's I, – I, listen, I think this fall is going to be so much fun just because of – of the transfer portal, you know, there's all these complaints, there's all these things going on and everybody, you know, is, is hating on this or hating on that. And, and listen, is everything perfect? No, but it is going to be very, very interesting to see how all of this unfolds over the next two to three years. Tom, appreciate the time. We'll have to get you back on closer to football season. Thank you so much. Thanks. Great. Stuff. Thanks for having me guys. Tom Luganbill, ESPN college football analyst, recruiting analyst does a great job on, on their broadcast of games as well. Uh, yeah. Really enjoyed talking with him. We're going to take a quick break. Orlando Brown turned down a huge contract with the Kansas City Chiefs. We'll discuss. That's coming up next. This is Outkick 360. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome back. Outkick 360 on a Friday. Chad Withrow, Paul Koharski with you. Some NFL news and notes. Orlando Brown Jr. and the Kansas City Chiefs, Paul, failed to reach an agreement on a long-term deal. And in this deal, six years, $139 million that included over a $30 million signing bonus and $95 million of that in the first five years, he's going to be a franchise player now, franchise tag for yeah, the Chiefs. All four guys who had franchise tags did not reach long-term uh, deals. That's Bates, the safety up in Cincinnati, Dalton Schultz with the Cowboys. I'm forgetting the fourth guy. Um, you know, this sounds like a hell of a deal for Orlando Brown, but you never know what it would have been until you see the paper, and we won't see the paper because he didn't sign it. Um so they, they both sides said, you know, they're, they're hopeful he'll sign a long-term deal in, in the long term. But they cannot now negotiate until the end of um, the 2022 season. So until the Chiefs finish playing um, this season, he's, he's playing under the franchise tag this year. Um, so uh, a bit surprising because of the four, this is the one that uh, tried the hardest to get something done. And I'm assuming the the signing bonus guaranteed money was at issue. Uh, if I'm trying to think of something that would be the objection, trying to get more than the 30 million as part of that contract, I, either I way, would it's imagine franchise so. tag. I, I would imagine so. I think Premier tackles are probably doing better than 30 million signing bonus, and we didn't get guarantee there. So, you know, it could be 30. And the fact that we didn't get a guarantee there is probably telling. Total guarantee. 
Paul, uh, one half of the McCourty twins, Jason McCourty, announces his retirement today. 13-year career. Big part of that with the Tennessee Titans. I know you have thoughts on, on Jason and his career. Jason McCourty played eight seasons with the Titans here. Uh, we all got to know him well. Uh, drafted as a sixth rounder, I think 2009, out of Rutgers. Um, the best teams that he was on were nine and seven. He endured uh, two and 14 and three and 13, the, uh, the Ken Wisenhunt years. And um, he was always a terrific stand-up guy. He was a major spokesman for the team. And he had a good career as, as a cornerback. He was an efficient and effective player, far more out of a sixth-round pick than you would expect. Went on to play for the Browns, obviously the Patriots, where he got to play a couple uh, or a few years with his brother. Played last year for the Miami Dolphins. That's an impressive career. For uh, an impressive guy, you wish him nothing but the best in retirement. I think he could be a media guy. Uh, those Patriots years probably got him enough notoriety if he wanted to be a media guy. I think he'd be a terrific talk radio guy if, if that's what he wanted to be. Uh, I always thought of him as, as a candidate when we were on terrestrial radio here in Nashville where there was a, a lack of Titans, former Titans, who were good candidates, you know when that's something they were always looking for there. Um, I think he'd be good. You never know, you know. You always kind of had some guys you thought would be good that turned out to be bad. And some guys that you weren't so sure about that were better than you expected. I think Jason McCourty's a pretty safe bet that, that he would be good at it, that he would be diligent at it, that he would be able to talk about um, multiple sports and – you know, you always need that time window for, for players that you played with to pass so you could be more critical. But I think Jason McCourty, he's got a bright future ahead of him, whatever he chooses to do. Yeah, and I, I feel like those guys that, that are stand-up guys to the media and are great to go to for quotes during really tough times for a franchise, like you mentioned, sort of the lack and of success. And he was vanilla you when know, he was because there. he had to be. But those guys kind of hold a special place in their heart, too. Yeah, absolutely. Because they're stand-up guys during some, you know, not some lean absolutely. years. Absolutely for a team so uh, great career for Jason McCourty Glenn Gilbo is going to talk some SEC West with us we got a lot to well, talk about well he and about. Chad fight there's potential for a could fight be, here. Could, could be a bit of an argument also Glenn Gilbo of OutKick.com SEC columnist is next